We are going to get started as we're, as we're getting settled. Uh, I thank Craig for covering for me last Sunday. He did a great job, so I'm so appreciative of that. We have, you know, a great stable of men able to, to handle that task, and that's a, that's a wonderful thing. So I thank him for that and, and just give you guys um, a quick update on Wedstrong. So a large group of us uh, just got back from Wedstrong last night. Uh, there this weekend. Many of them are still there uh, enjoying Nashville, but I think we have a picture of the group, uh, that we, at least not, not everybody, but, but a good percentage of us. Um, that's, our, that's our Wedstrong group, so we had, we had a great time, and, and um, I, know I, think it was a, I think it was a good conference. You can, you, can, you can see who was there, and then you can go ask them and, and plan, to, plan to schedule that time uh, next year. So um, it, was, it, was, it was a great time. It was, uh, I, think a, I think, a great time had by all, and, and um, certainly some, um, some good, good teaching, um, with, maybe with the exception of mine. But, you know, everybody else did, did, a, did a wonderful job. But with all that said, um, let's go ahead and get to where we're going today. So if you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 33. Genesis chapter 33, we're continuing our family portrait series, we're continuing to kind of work our way through this book, we won't be in Genesis next Sunday, but, uh, but we're still here today, and in Genesis, Genesis chapter 33, we're going to see the case study of two family members who had been estranged and at, and at odds with each other for over 20 years, and we're going to see them come together for reconciliation through the application of faith principles. So the title for today's sermon is Applying Faith and Reconciliation. And our case study, or the family portrait for today, comes in the relationship of two brothers, Jacob and Esau. So we have the example of siblings this morning, but these principles can be applied to any family relationship, certainly to the husband and wife relationship. These principles can even be applied to church family relationship, because the truth is, even good, God-fearing Christians, we get sideways with each other sometimes. We all deal with this at some level. It certainly happens within blood family relationships. It also happens in church family relationships. None of us are immune to, to, to getting sideways and having is, issues with another person. And the reason for that is the reason why we are going through this series. Families and marriages are relentlessly attacked by our enemy, the devil. And we see that pattern from the very beginning of time. Adam and Eve were created. Things were great until they weren't. And they partake in the fruit of the one tree that was off limits and sin enters the world. And Satan tears at the fabric of that very first marriage and that very first relationship. And after the sin, we see Adam blaming Eve, and, and off we go. And then what's next? Genesis chapter 4. And Satan attacks the family. And he pits siblings against each other, and it gets so bad it ends in murder. So we know this is, this is the very beginning of man. Genesis 3, Genesis 4, he's attacking marriage. He's attacking siblings. He's attacking the family. So we know the devil's playbook. We're not ignorant of his devices. He attacks marriages. He attacks families because he knows that they are foundational to the church and they are foundational to society in general. Listen, there's no mistake on, on what God did and how he designed this world. Three major institutions that God's ordained, the government, the church, and the family. But he didn't start with government and he didn't start with the church. He started with the family. And, and Satan knows it. And the family is foundational. It's why it's being attacked so heavily today in our society. And Satan wants to rip at its core, and he's been firing away for some 6,000 years. And many of you in this room are well aware of that. And you're quite acquainted with his tactics. And he certainly got between the two brothers we're going to look at in our study this morning, Jacob and Esau. And just to give you a little bit of background and kind of bring you up to speed on who they are, Jacob and Esau are the sons of Isaac and Rebekah. We looked at Isaac and Rebekah's you know, dating story in Genesis 24 uh, a couple weeks ago. But Jacob and Esau's relationship 
was one of turmoil and deceit and threats and, and ultimately silence. They had 20 plus year, a 20-plus year stretch of no interaction whatsoever. And that, that, was, that was their relationship. And they were twins. I mean, they should have had a great relationship. But they fought starting even in Rebekah's womb. In Genesis 25, verses 21 through 26, we read, And Isaac entreated the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord was entreated of him, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. And the children struggled together within her. And she said, If it be so, why am I thus? And she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said unto her, Two nations are in thy womb. And two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels, and the one shall be stronger than the other, and the elder shall serve the younger. And when her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red all over like a hairy garment, and they called his name Esau. And after that came his brother out, and his hand took hold of Esau's heel, and his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was threescore years old when she bare them. And so they're fighting even in the delivery, right? Jacob's just grabbing at the heel Esau's coming out first, and Jacob's trying to beat him to the punch. And, and, and they're fighting just from the very beginning of their relationship. And, and, and that's because there, there's a much bigger picture with these two brothers than, than what we're even going to get into today. It's not really pertinent to our study. But just to oversimplify things for the sake of time, let me just say that Esau and Jacob are, are are representative characters. They're considered representative characters. And Esau, again, to oversimplify, typifies an unbeliever. Jacob, a man of faith. Jacob becomes Israel. Esau is Edom, father of great enemies of the people of God. And again, that's not necessarily pertinent to our study, but it's something that you should be aware of on a broader scale. And this picture of Jacob and Esau and the elder serving the younger and the fact that we consistently see something wrong with the first birth in Scripture and something very right about the second birth. Those are important items to note and be aware of. But what you need to understand for this morning is that Jacob and Esau always represented conflict. And they grew up very differently. Jacob was a plain man dwelling in tents, the Bible says, and, and he was his mother's favorite. Esau was a cunning hunter, a man of the field. And he was his father's favorite. And so what we learn from the very beginning of their relationship is, is their parents and their favoritism actually contributed to the turmoil. Their parents made things worse in their relationship. And, and that's a side tip here. I put this on, on your note, but it's something very important to note. Favoritism within a family always leads to resentment. At some level, favoritism within a family is going to lead to resentment. So mom and dad, be careful of that. That's a dangerous road to head down. But these two brothers, they continue down opposite paths as they grow up. And what we see is Jacob ends up taking advantage of Esau at a time when his flesh was weak. And he gets Esau to sell him his birthright for some food. And the truth is about that, Esau didn't really care because Esau, the birthright was a more spiritually focused thing and Esau didn't care about the spiritual. But Jacob, later on, under the tutelage of his mother, Rebekah, deceives Isaac into giving him, into giving Jacob his elder brother's blessing. So there was a blessing, an Abrahamic blessing that was to come to Esau because he was the elder brother. And, and Rebekah knew it and she didn't want that to happen and so she gets with Jacob and they deceive Isaac in his old age. And, and Isaac gives to Jacob what was rightly Esau's. And there were issues because of that. Esau, when it, when he didn't care much about the birthright. He cared a lot about the blessing. And rightfully so. He was upset because he was done wrong by his own mother and his own brother. I mean, there's, there's some serious family drama. And I, and I want you to see the result of those actions. In Genesis, Genesis 27, 41, it says, And Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing wherewith his father blessed him. And Esau said in his heart, The days of mourning for my father are at hand. He was getting old. He said, Then I will slay my brother Jacob. He's like, as soon, as soon as dad's gone, 
I'm going to get what's mine. <laughs> I'm going to kill him. Esau's ticked. He, he wants to kill his brother. So Rebekah gets word of this, and she warns Jacob, and she, she tells him to leave. She tells him to flee. And so the result of this interfamily turmoil and sin is a broken family. Jacob leaves, never sees his mother again, ends up getting deceived by what becomes his father-in-law, a man by the name of Laban, gets deceived by him many times over. That story is its own family drama in and of itself. And it all results in Jacob and Esau being apart and estranged from each other for, for, for 20 plus years. And there's a lot that God was doing in that time, but, but it's a sad story. It's a story of a broken family. But by the time Genesis 31 rolls around, Jacob takes his two wives, Leah, Rachel. They leave Laban. That was their father. And, and in Genesis 32, he, he decides it's time. He, and we'll, we'll learn why. But he decides it's time to reconcile with Esau. And again, this is over 20 years from when they parted. He spent 20 years with Laban, right? He had to serve seven years to marry who he thought was Rachel. Turns out it wasn't. <laughs> Turns out it was Leah. And then he has to serve seven more years. And then he's able to marry uh, uh, Rachel. And he spends 20 years there with, with them. And, and again, that, that was craziness. Now it's time for him to leave. And, and in Genesis 32, we get the famous story of Jacob wrestling with God. And this represents a big change for Jacob. Jacob was a deceiver, supplanter. That's what the name, that's what the name means. But here he turned, in Genesis 32, he turns a corner of faith, and his name is changed to Israel. And he's set to meet with his brother face to face for the first time in many, many years. And he was nervous. He admitted it while praying to the Lord in Genesis 32, 11. He says, deliver me, I pray thee, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he will come and smite me and the mother with the children, with the children. But he sets out to meet him anyways. It doesn't, as far as he knows, Esau still wants to kill him. But he sets out to meet him. And we're going to see their encounter and their ultimate reconciliation in Genesis 33. And we're going to read the first 17 verses and learn how faith was applied in the reconciliation of these two family members. Genesis 33, verse 1 says, And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau came, and with him 400 men. And he divided the children unto Leah and unto Rachel and unto the two handmaids. And he put the handmaids and their children foremost and Leah and, and her children after and Rachel and Joseph hindermost. And he passed over before them and he bowed himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. And Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. And he lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children and said, Who are those with thee? And he said, the children which God have graciously given thy servant. And the handmaids came near, they and their children, and they bowed themselves. And Leah also with her children came near and bowed themselves. And after came Joseph near and Rachel, and they bowed themselves. And he said, what meanest thou by all this drove that I met? And he said, these are to find grace in the sight of my Lord. And Esau said, I have enough, my brother, keep that thou hast unto thyself. Because he, he came with cattle and he came with all sorts of things. And in, in verse nine, or verse 10, And Jacob said, Nay, I pray thee, now if I have, if, and now I have found grace in thy sight, then receive my present at my hand. For therefore I have seen thy face as though I had seen the face of God. And thou was pleased with me. Take, I pray thee, my blessing that is brought to thee, because God hath dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. And he urged him, and he took it. And he said, Let us take our journey. And let us go, and I will go before thee. And he said unto him, My Lord knoweth that the children are tender, and the flocks and herds are young, are, are with me, with young are, are with me. And if men should overdrive them one day, all the flock will die. Let my Lord, I pray thee, pass over before a servant, and I will lead on softly, according as the cattle that goeth before me, and the children be able to endure until I come unto the land of Seir. And he said, Let me now leave with thee some of the folk that are with me. And he said, What needeth it? Let me find grace. In the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way into Seir. And Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built him a house and made booths for his cattle. Therefore the name 
of the place is called Sukkoth. All right, let's pray, and then let's, let's, let's break down this story. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much uh, for your word this morning. It's, um, it's everything. It's, it's what we need in this life, and, and it gives us the answers to all sorts of situations, and we're going to see some answers this morning for, for reconciliation within relationships. And so, Lord, I pray that, that you use it in our lives, and, and um, Lord, that your, your Holy Spirit will speak to each and every one of us where we need it. And, and, Lord, that you be glorified through it. So I pray that everything that's said to your, uh, is true to your word. I, I, I pray that you're honored uh, through this entire service, the praise, the worship, the fellowship that we have, all because of you. And thank you so much for that. We love you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a very interesting Bible story. The book of Genesis is just filled with one and after another. Um, and, and this shows us, this particular story shows us a path for faith-based reconciliation within families. And people have various takes on this story. Like if you read commentaries, you're going to get different takes on this story. And specifically, you're going to get different takes on Jacob's motiv- motivation behind what, what he was doing. And, and we'll talk a little bit about that as we move through. But some believe that Jacob actually wasn't sincere at all, that he was just trying to deceive and manipulate his brother one more time to get what he wanted out of this situation. Now, I personally don't believe that to be true for a few reasons. I'll explain that as we go along. One, this is after Genesis 32 when he has that wrestling match with God. But the truth is it, it could be true. The, we, the fact is we don't know Jacob's motivation because the Bible doesn't tell us. So I say that to say if you read someone that's very dogmatic about Jacob's motivation one way or another, well, well, they're inferring on Scripture. The Bible does not tell us Jacob's motivation. But at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter because the pictures are vivid and we need to see them. There's some very important lessons we can learn when it comes to reconciling relationships. And listen, this is good for all of us. We all need this because, because this life is full of relationships and and you know just as well as I do, relationships aren't always easy, and they aren't always smooth. So there's a family portrait we need to develop this morning, and this is where it starts. This is our first key to reconciliation, and that is you need to have the faith to address it. You need to have the faith to address it. You see, it starts with simply taking action to get it right, and Jacob is doing that. And he's doing it as an act of faith. And I say that because he's following the Lord and returning to his father's land. He's been out with Laban, his father-in-law, serving with Laban for 20 years. And, and again, Laban turns out to be just as bad as Esau, man. Like, like that, he's not a, good, not a good guy. And God tells Jacob to return to the land of his fathers. He's to go back to Bethel. But God gives him a promise with that command. It's Genesis, we see that in Genesis 31.3. And the Lord said unto Jacob, Return unto the land of thy fathers and to thy kindred, and I will be with thee. Okay, so, so God's telling Jacob it's time to go back home. But what that means is he's going to have to face Esau. And he's willing to do it, though. He's willing to obey. He, 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 he shows his faith. To, and he shows faith that he's to be able to face what is in front of him, but he has this promise from the Lord, I will be with thee. And that's key to understand, to be able to, to accomplish what we're looking to accomplish when we're reconciling relationships. God has to be with us. We have to move forward in faith. These are faith-based principles. If you try flesh-based principles, it's just going to get worse. You have to have God with you, and God has this promise to Jacob. So he didn't run from it. He didn't ask the Lord to send him somewhere else. He knew what he had to do, but he was afraid. We saw that in, in, in chapter 32. So in order to address your family dysfunction and face it head on, first, you must be able to conquer fear. Right? So we have to address it in faith. But there's some fear associated with that. And, and, and we're going to talk about fear here for a little bit. But fear plays out on many different levels for many people. It's not always like Jacob. Jacob was afraid that, that Esau was going to kill him. Okay, well, that's, that's not usually our fear. Like when we have family dysfunction. We're not, we're not afraid to go to the other person because we're afraid they're going to kill us. 
I mean, it does happen, but, but most of us, for most of us, that's not the issue. So we're going to talk about fear because we, fear, fear can come in the form of pride because we're afraid that justice isn't going to be served or afraid that they're not going to get what they deserve. So, so we're going to talk about fear here for a little bit because wh- however it plays out in your life, you have to be able to conquer it. And the truth is that many relationships are in disarray today because one party or both parties are unwilling to efface that fear and move forward to address the situation in faith. And again, that last piece is the key to address the situation in faith. If you just want to address it in your flesh, you should not address it. And we're going to talk about that more next. But when you are willing... To follow the Lord's way in faith, then it's time to conquer fear, any fear that you have, and take action. And that's exactly what Jacob did. And he was, still, he was still afraid, even after he made the decision to meet with Esau. But he didn't let that fear cripple him. Look at Genesis 33, verses 1 and 2 again. Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau came, and with him 400 men. And he divided the children unto Leah, and unto Rachel, and unto the two handmaids. And he put the handmaids and their children foremost, and Leah and her children after, and Rachel and Joseph hindermost. Okay, so listen, you would, the truth is, you, me, we'd all probably be a little scared here too. The last thing Jacob knows is that Esau wants to kill him. And he's coming with his family to meet Esau, and Esau's rolling up with 400 soldiers. <laughs> I mean, it's going to be a little unnerving. He has no idea exactly how this is going to go down. But this is important with respect to conquering fear and faith because it's ultimately about giving the situation over to the Lord and trusting him with the results. You see, fear wants to control the outcome. Fear wants you to set things up in a way where you protect yourself. That's how we know that Jacob is still afraid here and that he still doesn't have everything perfect in his life because he sets up his family in an order and is based on how he loved them. He put the handmaids and their children up front. He puts Leah and her children next. They're in like single file line, picture this. And he puts Rachel and Joseph at the back. It's like, listen, if they're going to come get us, Maybe you guys can run and, you know, maybe you can get away. And so he sets them up based on the order that he loved him. So he's still committing some of the same sins of his parents. And, and he's showing favoritism in his family. But he had conquered his fear enough that he's still going to go through with this, no matter what. And the truth is, listen, if Esau had bad intentions, nobody on Jacob's side was going to end up okay in this situation. Esau and his 400 men could have caught Rachel and Joseph, even though they were back at the, at the back of the line. So Jacob is still showing some fear, but listen, that just proves he's human. Because ultimately in life, in all situations of life, fear is unavoidable. Fear in situations like this is always going to come upon us. The key is we just can't let it get inside of us. Right, so we're going to feel fear, but is that fear going to control us? That's the question. Or are we going to be able to conquer it and move forward in faith? You see, we can't let the fear control our thoughts and our decisions. We have to be able to cast those thoughts down. We have to be able to bring into captivity any of those thoughts that go against faith. So Jacob is afraid, and we see it, but he's still moving forward in faith. And by the way, I do want to note this because even though the steps Jacob to provide some level of protection to his family, they were, they were flawed in favoritism. As a father, he did have a responsibility to do what he could to protect his family. So the thought was good. The execution was just a little off. First Timothy 5.8 says, but if any provide not for his own, especially for those of his own house, he had denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. So, so again, there's so much we could do with this passage, and there's all these little side points. But let me give you this one for the dads. I just, I just want to say this. There's a very evil world out there, a world that hates you and your family. 
and they want our kids. Listen, all I can say is I feel like, listen, I'm sure every generation felt this at a certain level, but man, pastorally, I look at what's going on in the world and and I feel like humanity today is trying to put Sodom and Gomorrah to shame. They're working hard at, at being the worst. And so as fathers and as parents, we need to protect our children from this world. And, 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 and all that means is we need to make sure they have a way of escape. Because like Jacob, we ultimately have to trust the Lord with our children. We can't be with them every, every step of the way. But here's how you make a way of escape. You instill in them a biblical worldview from, a, from very, very young. You instill in them a biblical worldview. You raise them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And when they're faced with everything they're going to be faced with, they have a way of escape. Because they know the truth. They've been, they've been enlightened to the truth of God's word. And then they can make their own decisions. But listen, if you're not doing that, if you're not instilling in them a biblical worldview, if you are not raising them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, then you are not making a way of escape. You are not protecting your children. And in fact, you're serving them up on a platter for the world to devour. So it's a little side lesson for you there, but an important one nonetheless. But back to our main point, we must understand what fear is and and what it does to us and how it is contrary to faith because while fear always wants to control the outcome, faith knows you can't. Faith knows you can't control the outcome. Listen, this story has a very interesting end that we're going to talk about. Faith knows you can't control the outcome, but here's what faith wants to do. Faith wants to do what is right in the sight of God. Even if the outcome isn't what you want. That's the position Jacob put himself in, in verses 3 and 4, because he was conquering his fear through faith. And look at verse 3. And he passed over before them. So Jacob comes to the front. He passed over before his, his family. He passed over before them and bowed himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. And Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. So Jacob does what he can, however flawed it may be, he does what he can in his mind to protect his family, and then he goes to the front, as a good leader should. And he goes to the front to face the music. And he bows down before Esau seven times. He's walking towards him, and they're coming together. And he bows seven times, and, and we'll talk about even that a little bit. But when Esau sees him, he starts running to Jacob. And I want you to just picture this scene in your mind. Because Jacob still does not know Esau's intentions. I mean, this could go either way. And if Jacob had allowed the fear to get in him, that he was feeling on the outside, if he allowed it to get in him and in his thoughts, and he was interpreting this data of Esau running right at him, through that fear, he might have thought Esau was charging to kill him. He might have taken a position to fight. He might have even taken a swing when Esau came in for for a hug. And if he would have done that, what would have happened? Things would have gone right back to where they started. And they would have been at odds with each other. And Esau might have ended up killing him. Who knows? But listen, that happens to us all the time. So many times, because we're, we're, we're thinking through fear, through our flesh, and not faith, and so we're having a conflict with somebody, and we interact with them, but not in faith. And we're led by our fear, our fear of getting hurt, our fear of not seeing justice, again, however that plays out for you. So when they're talking and they're coming at us, we are interpreting the data, whatever they are saying, through the lens of fear. And we don't do it through a position of faith. And what happens is we assume things that probably aren't even true. And then we lash back. And when they might even be coming in for a hug, we take a swing. And it just sends everything back to where it started. And those disappointments from the past 
just come rolling back in to both parties. And no progress is made. In fact, you regress further. Trenches are dug deeper. And listen to me, Satan is just smiling. Mission accomplished. It's what he wants. No, if you want to apply faith in reconciliation, you cannot come in fear. You have to conquer that fear. Again, however, whatever that means to you it is, is those fleshly thoughts. Again, it may be very different than Jacob's fear. You may be mad. You may be the aggressor. But there's still fear. Again, there's a fear that they're not going to get what they deserve or whatever. Whatever it may be. You're dealing with some fear in there that you have to be able to conquer. You can't be led by it. You can't be led by it. And we have to conquer it. We have to be able to give that over to the Lord. Your goal has to be, I'm going to do right in the sight of God, regardless of the outcome. And listen, even as Christians, we have to be, we must be on guard for the control of fear in our lives all the time. We know from 2 Timothy 1.7, for God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. We know that, those verses very well. We know Romans 8.15, for we've not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but we've received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. See, fear should not control the Christian. right? Fear is, is something of the world. Fear shouldn't control the Christian. We've not received that spirit of bondage. We don't have a spirit under fear. We won't have a spirit of fear. We've been given something much more. We have the Holy Spirit of God inside us. Yet, so many Christians are still living in bondage to fear because this is the spirit of our age that is working against the church. And Satan is always, listen, he's always used fear and deception in his tactics. But there is no doubt that it has ramped up. Because as, an, as a nation, really as a world, we decided to succumb to a spirit of fear in March of 2020. And the attacks have ramped up ever since. And it's easy for us, even as Christians, to get caught up in all of it, and maybe we're not afraid of COVID, but there's just a spirit of fear that is looming in the air. And it's easy for us to just get caught up in, and what, what you don't even know, this whole thing has nothing to do with your health. Listen, life and death are in the hands of the Lord. 1 Samuel 2, 6 says, The Lord killeth and maketh alive. He bringeth down to the grave and bringeth up. Psalm 31, 15 says, My times are in thy hand. My times, my days. The number of days I have, they're in thy hands. Deliver me from the hand of thy enemies and from them that persecute me. So this spirit of fear that is just consuming our world and our culture, it goes so much deeper than our health. And when we allow it to get in us, it compromises everything, including our relationships. So listen, you have to, you must conquer fear to have faith to address these different situations that life presents. But then secondly, there's a second piece to addressing your broken family relationship. And that is when you address it, you need to come humbly. That's the example we see from Jacob. Verse 3, and he passed over before them and bowed himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. This is actually a greeting for a king. And there's a, there's a big picture in here of, of how we come to Jesus, the, the king of kings. We, we have to come humbly. We, we bow to him. But, but, but what we see here is Jacob in his humility. He wasn't cowering. So this wasn't... He wasn't cowering because he was afraid. He was showing reverence and respect to his brother. In addition, Jacob calls Esau Lord in verse 8, in verse 13, in verse 14, and in verse 15. And now, again, back to what I mentioned in the introduction, some would say this is all part of Jacob's decep deception, that, he, that he was, he's going over the top and calling him Lord. 
And again, maybe, but what they miss is that Jacob called Esau Lord in chapter 32 when he was talking to his own guys. Genesis 32, verses 3 and 4, and Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother into the land of Seir, the country of Edom, and he commanded them saying, thus shall ye speak unto my Lord Esau. He's just talking to his guys. He's like, this is my Lord Esau. This is what you need to tell him. Thy servant Jacob saith thus, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed there until now. You see, Jacob had a spirit of humility even before he was face to face with Esau. Because he was doing his best, not perfectly, but he was doing his best to move forward in faith. So if you want and if you desire reconciliation in a ruptured relationship, then you have to approach that reconciliation with humility. You just have to. It's not going to work otherwise. And this is a problem in so many family relationships that have gone astray. So, so what we do, because we, you know, we have this in our mind on how things will go, and we say we want reconciliation, and we say the right things, we say we want things to, our, to be better, but, then, but our approach doesn't say that. Because we get sideways with someone, and our, our approach to reconciliation is something like this. I need to talk to you about how, you, how you've wronged me. <laughs> And I need you to get right. I mean, we need to be reconciled. So you need to understand what you did. And listen, I mean, at some level, it takes two to tango. It takes both sides to rupture a relationship. And even even if not, it doesn't even matter. It doesn't matter. And I'm going to show you why it doesn't matter. And let me just say this, it doesn't matter because Christ is our example, the most humble man to ever live. So it just doesn't matter. So we're to follow Jacob's example. He owned his part humbly, Proverbs 22, 4, by humility and the fear of the Lord are riches and honor and life. Listen, with humility and proper fear, fear of the Lord, not fear of this world, comes great blessing. Riches and honor and life. Proverbs 29, 23, a man's pride shall bring him low, but honor shall uphold the humble in spirit. So listen, if you have a a relationship that is ruptured, you need to be willing to address it, but you should not come to them wanting to beat them into your version of submission. You should be humble. You should address them with respect. And when you are at that point where you can address the situation without fear, through humility and respect, then it makes the second key to reconciliation so much easier. And that is, you need to have the faith to absolve it. So you need to address it, right? If, if it never gets addressed, it never gets fixed. But you have to come with the right attitude. Not in the flesh, not in, in, in fear, in faith. In humility, in reverence, and you have to have the faith to absolve it. Your goal has to be forgiveness and reconciliation. Because when, when we get to verse 4, not only was Jacob willing to reconcile, but so was Esau. And what a great picture that is. Now, unfortunately, that's not always our experience. Sometimes we are the only ones ready to reconcile. And if that's the case, we're going to talk about what to do in our next point. But whether the other person is ready or not, and, and, and willing to talk or not, like, like, you know, you need to be willing to address it. That may not even be a possibility. That may not be an option because that other person may be like, nope, we ain't talking about it. Oh, okay, we're going to talk about how to handle that. But this is for you. Whether that person is ready or not, you need to be willing to absolve and forgive them for what they did to you. You see, your faith to absolve and forgive and then give it to the Lord, it actually has nothing to do with the other party. And that absolutely is the model of Jesus. Look at the very words of Jesus while he was hanging and dying on the cross. Luke 23, 24. Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast lots. And who was Jesus asking his father to forgive? Everybody. Those that were killing him. Those that put him on the cross. Guess what? 
That includes you and me. Because it was my sin that put him there. And it was your sin that put him there. And Jesus didn't wait on us to get things right before he forgave us. That's not, that's not the model. God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But not only is that the model, that's also the command that we have in Scripture. Ephesians 4.32, And be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Listen to how Paul describes it in the companion passage in Colossians 3, verses 12 through 14. Put on therefore as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercy, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, longsuffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. And listen, Ephesians 4.32 and Colossians 3, verses 12 through 14, those are some of my primary go-to verses in counseling. I make people memorize Ephesians 4.32 all the time in relationship quarrels. Because they're so straightforward. Not only do they tell us exactly what to do, they tell us why we are to do it. And yet, even when I explain it and have them memorize the verses, my experience has been it's the, it's the rare person who then actually applies them. And everybody has their reasons why these verses don't apply to them in their situation. Now, they won't say that out loud. <laughs> But that's the reality. That's what, that's what their life and their actions show. So I'm sorry. Those verses apply to you, to me, to every Christian who has ever lived. And why? It's all because of this one magnificent word, grace. God has shown us grace. So we are to show grace to others. That is the picture we see here in Genesis chapter 3. Look at verses 4 through 8. And Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. And he lifted up his eyes and he saw the women and the children and said, Whose are these? He's seeing his brother's family for the first time in 20 years. He's like, man, who's all this you got with you? He said, The children which God hath graciously given thy servant. And then they all start coming to him. They all start coming to Esau and bowing before him. And in verse 8, look at verse 8. He says, what meanest thou by all this drove which I met? And he said, these are to find grace in the sight of my Lord. And so, look, you, you just cannot miss this picture here. This is, the, this is the, 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 the pattern, the model of Scripture, right, that is applied to us that then we are to apply to everyone else. And that's, that's very simply this. Without grace, there's no forgiveness. And without forgiveness, there is no relationship. That's just the bottom line. Right? Without God's grace, there's no forgiveness of sin. There's nothing we can do to make right the sin that we have committed Grace just covers it. Grace, for, because of God's grace, we have forgiveness of sin. And because of forgiveness of sin, we get to have a relationship with Almighty God. And listen, this is the same thing with us. At some point, if you want a relationship, you ought to be able to show grace. Because without grace, there's no forgiveness. Without forgiveness, there's no relationship. And this right here is one of the primary things that make, makes biblical Christianity different from anything else in the world. It's God's grace. Because the truth is, there are many times in our life, because of our flesh, we look much more like the world than we do Christ. Now, what's one of the things in this sort of present iteration of, 
of today's world that, you know, I think, I think most of us probably is, is, is quite offensive to us. It's, it's something called cancel culture, right? And people are canceled because of, of what they said or, you know, one thing they did. And that includes speaking the truth of God's word, by the way. It includes sticking to religious beliefs that they hold in their heart. But here's the thing with cancel culture. There's no forgiveness. It's the same with Eastern religions that believe in things like karma. And we're so stupid, we believe it. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, listen, it's been a long weekend. I'm a little tired this morning. so I'm. Uh, but like, you know, like we talk about karma. Oh, Lord, have mercy. You know, you're going to get yours because you deserve it. That's the same as just any workspace religion. You got to do a lot of good things to make up for that bad you did. You know what Christ said? He said, I'll take it. I'll apply grace. And even though Christ did that for us, we refuse to do it to others. And when it comes to relationship reconciliation, we are not always ready to absolve in faith. And we want reconciliation on our terms. And we put conditions on others that Jesus does not put on us. On other Christians that Jesus bled and died for, that are a part of his body. Man, do you know what you're doing? I hope so, but I'm afraid you don't. And you say, you don't know what they did to me. You don't understand how bad they hurt me. And they abused me. And they treated me so poorly. And you know what? You're right. I don't know. And I absolutely hate it for you. There are atrocities that occur in this world because of sin that are unspeakable. And maybe even some of those atrocities have happened to you. And if so, let me say, I am so sorry. And I'm sorry that you had to go through that. But while I don't know, and I don't understand, I know someone who does. So all I know to tell you is to trust in that and trust in him. Follow his model. Listen to what Paul tells the Philippians in, in Philippians chapter 3, verses 13 to 14. He says, Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do. Forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And when we spend so much time looking back and, and, and looking at what has happened to us, man, it, it just keeps us from looking to all that God has for us and all that God has called us to. And I know that, that this world's therapeutic counseling tells us that we need to go back. We need to address all the trauma from the past. And I know that a lot of people, including I'm sure some that are even in this room right now, re really believe that. and think that's a healthy approach to dealing with our past hurts, especially with others. And listen, I, this is hard for me to even, even say, but because I know it, it, it sounds good. It makes sense. This makes sense in our head. It makes sense to me. It makes sense in our humanistic thinking. But can I remind you that it's the world telling you that that's a healthy approach, a world that hates you and wants to subvert your relationship with God? Because here, listen, at the end of the day, I, I can't get past this. I don't find it in the Bible. Show me. Show me in the Bible where God says that's the approach we need to take for reconciliation to really occur. So I don't, I, as much as I want to, <laughs> I can't care if it sounds or feels like the right approach. I need book, chapter, verse. I've looked. 
I still haven't found it. And if this is truly our authority, it has to be that in every area of life, even the inconvenient ones. And the picture and the model I see in this book is one of grace. And when you give it up and you give it to him truly, not in word only, truly do that, he makes a supernatural change in you and healing for all that has happened is available to you and it is amazing and it is so much better than what this world offers. And I know this is, this is a hard word. This is a hard word to hear. I just have to be true to God's word the best I know it. But you don't have to live with the heaviness and the emptiness that another person has brought upon you. You can give it to him. And I can't explain it. It's a supernatural work that he can and will do to heal you. And you can rest in him and in his arms. It can be better. And sometimes all it takes is what we saw with Jacob and Esau. Look again there in verse 4. And we're really behind. But I'm gonna, we're going to get through this. Verse 4. And Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. And listen, let me just say this. You know, I suspect there are some people even in this room who need to take verse 4 to heart and do exactly that. That there's somebody that you need to go to and without saying a word, you need to hug and give them a kiss on the cheek because you know it was wrong and you know it was messed up. And sometimes words actually just get in the way because what we do, we don't mean to, but when we end up talking, we just end up somehow starting to justify what we did and why we did it. And I know there's a time and a place for that, certainly, and, and each situation is different, is different. But I also believe there's also a time and a place for no words and just an embrace and honest tears. Because you've forgiven them. And your hope is to be forgiven in return. You know, I... I I just feel like because of our flesh and, and, and because of the walls we put up, we're just so easy to give up on people. And we make arbitrary determinations that, that things aren't going to work. And so we just let relationships go because it, it's, it, it feels it's too hard. It's too hard to take the steps that are necessary. I just believe this story points to a different possibility. So I wish you would consider it. We have Esau, who's a picture of an unsaved, ungodly man in the Bible. He never comes to faith. And the last Jacob knows, Esau wants to kill him. In fact, that's how he was, listen, Esau was such a bad, in such a bad place, that's how he was making himself feel better, the thought of killing Jacob. Listen to Genesis 27, 42. And these words of Esau, her elder son, were told to Rebekah, and she sent and called that, 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 that Esau wanted to kill him. And she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said unto him, Behold, thy brother Esau, as touches thee, doth comfort himself, purposing to kill thee. Uh, This dude had murder in his heart. This is how he's comforting himself. He's making himself feel better by the thought of, you know what, I'm going to kill him one of these days. One of these days, I'm going to get him. And listen, the truth is, some of you have been there. We all, every single one of us in that room, in this room, know that feeling at some level. But just look at what happened. Esau, with murder in his heart, shows grace and comes and hugs and kisses and weeps with his brother. Miracle changes in relationships are still possible. Don't give up. You never know what God will do when you act in faith. And that brings us to our third key to reconciliation, and that is you need to have the faith to accept it. And with respect to acceptance, and we'll move through this quickly, although it is very important. I've I've taken too long on these other points. But with respect to acceptance, we see it on three separate levels in our text. So if you want to apply faith and reconciliation, first you need to be willing to accept responsibility. We've already talked about this some, but 
But you see it specifically in, in verses 8 through 11. And so in, in, in Genesis 33, verses 8 through 11, we have all those verses. You can, you can read it there on your own. But, but basically what Jacob is doing is, is he's offering to pay. He's offering to pay him. He's offering restitution. And he's accepting responsibility for what he did to Esau, and he was trying to pay him back. And that was certainly part of Old Testament um, a practice, Old Testament restitution. This situation, Genesis 33, is obviously before the law, but that principle remains into the law. We see that principle of restitution even in our legal system today. It's part of accepting responsibility. And listen, if you have a ruptured relationship, and you need to accept any responsibility that's yours. If you had a part in it, then accept it and seek forgiveness. Now, with that being said, you don't have to accept responsibility for something you didn't do. Esau doesn't. Esau had the blessing stolen from him. And when Jacob comes and, and is seeking forgiveness and accepting responsibility, Esau didn't, didn't accept any responsibility because Esau didn't do anything. So that's okay. That's fine. You still need to show grace. You still need to forgive. But you only need to accept responsibility for your part. And if the other party doesn't like that, that's on them. So you accept your responsibility. Then second, though, you also need to be able to accept their remorse. So if they are sorry, if someone's coming to you and they're sorry and they have accepted their responsibility and therefore are remorseful, accept that. Forgive them. You're supposed to do that anyway. But that's exactly what we see with, see with Esau. He accepted the remorse that Jacob showed toward him. In fact, he invited Jacob and his family to come back to Seir with him. We see that in verse 12. And he said, let us take our journey and let us go, and I will go before thee. So he invites him back to Seir. And Esau wanted Jacob to come with him. But listen, this is where this story gets very interesting. Jacob doesn't go with him. And we see that starting in verse 13. So 13 down through verse 17. Let me summarize it for you for sake of time. He basically just says, you know what? I have kids with me. I have cattle with me. It's just you and 400 men. You guys are going to want to go fast. And if we push them, the the cattle's going to die. They can't handle that. So so we're going to go at our own pace, but we'll meet you there. You go ahead and we'll meet you there. And so that's kind of how that went down. But what happens from there and what we see in verse 17 down through the end of the chapter is that Jacob never goes. He never ends up back in Seir with his brother. He was supposed to go back to Bethel, which, is, which was on the way to Seir, or was on the other side of Seir. That was the Lord's command, to go back to the land of your fathers. And ultimately, he doesn't even do that, not right away, and it takes him too long. And his decision in verse 17 to stay in Succoth and in Shechem, it was clearly a wrong decision, and you can read about the devastating results of that decision in chapter 34. But here's what I want you to see. Jacob reconciles with his brother in this passage, but they don't really, at least that we see, ever have a relationship again. In fact, we don't know that they see each other again until their father's death. In Genesis 35, 29, it says, And Isaac gave up the ghost and died and was gathered unto his people, being old and full of days, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. This was the only time we see in Scripture that they ever come together again. Now, maybe they did, and the Bible just doesn't record it. But this is the only time we see. And so, again, maybe this entire thing was Jacob deceiving Esau just to make sure he didn't kill him. Jacob certainly didn't tell the truth. Maybe it was unintentional, but he didn't follow through on his word when he told Esau he would come back to Seir. And I think that's just more a reflection of the weird relationship they always have. But here's the last piece having the faith to accept it because once you go through this process and you address it in faith not in fear and you approach them humbly humbly and respectfully and you genuinely forgive and ask forgiveness and you show grace you accept any responsibility that you have or any remorse that they show whether honest or not that's between them and the Lord at that point you have to accept the results and the results may not be what you want The results may be that you never become best friends again. But that's okay. Because now you are blameless. And you've given it all to the Lord. So just know, this is the unfortunate part of sin. But just know that in human relationships, there can be reconciliation without full restoration. Now hopefully not. 
hopefully everything's great and the relationship's better than ever. But listen, when it comes to relationships, that always means there are two or more people involved. And that means everybody has to be on the same page. And the fact is, that's just not always the case. So we need to learn the good enough principle when it comes to relationships. And and here's the good enough principle. If we have done our part, sometimes we just have to accept that that things are good enough. Because there are times where we want it to be more and better, so we keep pushing and it actually just makes things worse because that other party isn't ready. And in those situations, all you can do is give your expectations over to God and be okay with what he gives you back. But you are now free, whatever the outcome. And even if they are like Jacob and never really talk to you again, you can now let it go and you are blameless before the Lord and you can move on and you can move forward in life and ministry pressing toward that mark that God has called you toward. But it will never happen if you don't apply faith in your reconciliation scenario. So be willing to address it. It might take some time. But when you're ready to do things God's way and not your own, face what you have to face. But do so with a mind towards forgiveness, being willing to absolve and forgive them. And then accept it. Accept your responsibility, accept their remorse, and accept the results, whatever they may be. Remember, you can't control the outcome but you can always do what is right in the sight of God. So let's do that and see what happens in our ruptured relationships.